everybody, and welcome back to the show. And thank you so much for listening. You know I really do appreciate it. Well, hey guys, we're really moving into the fall because today is November 16th and it's 2021 and I am coming to you live from Los Angeles, California. But if you are still listening to the show, guys, you are now in season three and now we are in episode 11 and part five of the little mini-series that I've been doing here of Lost Christian Heresies and the Battle for Supremacy. And this is the history of religions and, of course, their gods. Oh, wow, that one actually really hurt my taint a little. I hope it did the same for you. But, hey, guys, I'm your host. I am the skeptical ghost heathen, and I am an amateur ancient history enthusiast, as well as a what? A hobbyist of ancient religions, and, of course, their origins. And just like you guys, I'm a student with the desire to find the truth. But this show is a result of that five-year study and that subsequent 800-and-odd-page essay that I wrote. Many of you already possess it, and it's in circulation out there somewhere, so please feel free to follow along if you like. Enjoy some of the images and the charts that I included in there. So, again, why am I doing this podcast? And I know that I'm repeating this, but in case this is the first time you're listening to my show, um, I'm going to give you the answer. It's because I wanted to create a system of counter-apologetics that anyone can easily use and find to refute every single Christian as well as Islamic argument that's out there so far that I can find, and as well as establish the history of the most popular religion in the world. So my intention here is not to convert anyone from their faith, but to assist those who are curious, have questions about their faith, or perhaps need help getting out. They need reasons. They need explanations. But that's it, because let's face it, guys. There is no arguing with someone who accepts absurdities and doesn't care about facts or history or evidence. And I always say, if your argument requires God magic or miracles to make your story work, then you're not serious about wanting the truth. So, about the episode. The episode is entitled, Lost or Hidden Christian Heresies Part 5, and it's going to be about Christian Gnosticism as well as Mithraism. So in this episode, we're going to continue to review Bart Ehrman's Lost Christianities and some more, some other information that we're going to talk about. But again, if you haven't read the book yet, I highly recommend putting it on your Amazon list. Bart Ehrman's Lost Christianities. It's fantastic. A lot of great information in there. But in this episode, we're going to take a deep look at the last two religions that existed and grew through the 4th century contemporaneously with Proto-Orthodoxy and all the other Christian sects that were out there. And these last two guys that held their ground as well as their popularity alongside Christian Proto-Orthodoxy. Guys, it was a race. It was a war. It was about becoming larger and stronger than any other religions while abolishing as many different ideas and philosophies along the way that were counter to what the proto-orthodoxy wanted. And this came along with power, right? And this meant destroying temples as well as their literature and to never be heard from ever again. So guys, thank you for listening, and please share with a friend if you think that they could really get something from out of this show and it would enjoy it, and please help spread that love, goddammit. <laughs> but this show is completely commercial-free, and it's available on almost every single podcast platform, so there's no reason that you can't find it. So again, if you're ready for this excellent adventure to begin, 
Well, let's hop in or let's tune in and let's go find some lost or hidden scriptures that Christians don't even know about. Let's do this thing. of lost Christianity has so intrigued modern readers and puzzled modern scholars as much as early Gnosticism did. Christians in the know. The world of early Christian Gnosticism is what we're going to discuss in this particular episode. Because the intrigue is easy to understand, especially in the view of the discovery of the Nag Hammadi Library that we've been discussing over the last five, six episodes or so, when that group of sheep herders and field hands, headed by none or the other, Muhammad Ali, uncovered this strange cachet of books in Upper Egypt buried into the ground. The world was suddenly presented with hard, factual evidence of other Christian groups in the ancient world that stood in sharp contrast with any other kind of Christianity familiar to us today. There was no Jesus of the stained glass window found here, not a Jesus of the creeds, not even a Jesus of the New Testament. These books were fundamentally different and suppressed from anything in our experience, and almost nothing could have prepared us for them until now. So let's revisit that Nag Hammadi library because the Nag Hammadi Library contained a wide array of Christian literature, different writings and books, and many of them with the understandings about God, the world, Christ, and religions that differed not only from the views of the Proto-Orthodox Church, but also from one another. There were new gospel recordings of Jesus' words, and some of them containing his secret and truer teachings delivered right after his resurrection from the dead, and then gospels allegedly written by his disciple Philip and John, the son of Zebedee, by some by his brother James, and by his twin brother Thomas. Remember, we talked about him a couple episodes ago. Now, even though forged, still quite contemporary with the current gospel writers that were into the canon. But these books were obviously written seriously, and even meant to, meant to be taken seriously as providing a guide to the truth for the religion's followers, each of the sectarian groups of this literature. So the other books in the collection, including several different and internally diverse mystical reflections on how the divine realm even came into being. And most of these documents, they assume that there was simply not just one God overall, who had created the world and made it good. Some of these other gods, some of this other literature, were quite explicit. This creation of the world was not good. Not in the least. In fact, some of these groups believed that it was a result of a cosmic catastrophe, or perhaps a mistake, brought into being by an inferior, and, or, or an ignorant, or even an evil deity who, who erroneously imagined that he was the God Almighty. 
Such documents, therefore, give expression to what so many people over the course of history have known so well firsthand. That would be the starving, the diseased, the crippled, the oppressed, the deserted, and, of course, the heartbroken. Because this world to them at the time was a miserable place, living a horrible existence. How could, how could there be this great loving God with so much turmoil? And if there is any hope for deliverance, it will not come from within this world through worldly means. For example, by improving the welfare state or putting more teachers in the classroom or devoting more national resources to the fight against terrorism. This world is a cesspool of ignorance and suffering and salvation will not come by trying to make it better, but by escaping it altogether. Now, some of these documents of the Nag Hammadi Library not only express this view of the world, they also describe how such a world came into being in the first place, how humans came to inhabit it, another cosmic catastrophe, of course, and how we can escape it. For many of these texts, this deliverance from the material world can happen only when we learn about secret knowledge that can bring salvation. The four Gospels and the canon held this belief as well through transmitting the Word of God through parables and symbolism, as we discussed several times over. And we especially see this in John. That's why we know that John probably wrote closer into the second century, end of the first century, but sometime more than likely around 110, 120, 130 maybe. Because it appears that the philosophy of Gnosticism kicked in sometime around the late first century, sometime around the 90s when Luke was writing, and then really carried on by John. Salvation through knowledge. Now the word Gnosticism is just an ancient Greek word for knowledge. And Gnosticism is a collection of ancient religious ideas and systems which originated sometime in the first century among early Christians as well as Jewish sects and probably around the time of Luke and John, as I just said before, ranging sometime between 90 and 150 of the Common Era. And these various groups emphasized having personal spiritual knowledge, Gnosis, and knowledge over the Orthodox teachings and their traditions and ecclesiastical authority. That stuff didn't matter. It was about having knowledge. Now, Gnostic cosmology generally presents a distinction between a supreme hidden God and a malevolent lesser divinity responsible for creating the material universe as they understood it to be. But viewing this material existence as flawed or perhaps even evil, Gnostics considered the principal elements of salvation to be direct knowledge of supreme divinity in the form of mystical or esoteric insight. And many Gnostics Many Gnostic texts deal not in concepts of sin and repentance, but with illusion and enlightenment. Now, Gnostic writing and literature actually flourished among many Christian groups in the Mediterranean world, all the way up until right around the end of the second century, when the fathers of the early church started to denounce them as heresy, such as our pal Tertullian and Irenaeus, right, and Ignatius. Unfortunately, the efforts that these guys set forth to destroy these texts proved to be largely successful, result resulting in the survival of very little Gnostic writing at all. 
But that's just what Christians do when they don't like something, right? They feel as if they must destroy it, including any counter-argument positions. We only get to see the proto-orthodoxy side, right? And what they had to say about the counter-argument. But nonetheless, early Gnostic teachers such as Valentinus saw their beliefs as aligned with Christianity. In the Gnostic Christian tradition, Christ is seen as a divine being which has taken human form in order to lead humanity back to the light which they were led astray from by sin or by sinful leaders, more than likely such as the leaders of the continued messianic revolts, of course. But it sounds exactly like what Paul was up to, right? So, however, in Paul's mind, he felt that he needed to completely remove the temple cult sacrifice practice and replace it with a spiritual temple, being Christ. So, in Valentinus' time, the temple and its sacrifices actually already gone. But the war and the battles and the revolts, the rising up against the system, continued on between radical Judaism and the Romans. So, so in his celestial divine Christ, who must take human form, like the Gospels, who also replaces the temple, but leads lost Christians away from those who want to keep fighting the system through special spiritual knowledge. Once you know, you know. And you know that you're on the right track and with the true Christ, with the true Jesus, with the true leader of the religion. Right? That of Jesus Christ, of course, as told to us through the Gospels. Not those other guys claiming to be anointed and, you know, taking, causing centuries of civil war. Now, let's go back to Gnosticism a little bit here. Because it's not a single standardized system. And the emphasis on direct experience allows for a wide variety of teachings, including distinct currents such as Valentinianism as well as Sethianism. So in the Persian Empire... Gnostic ideas spread as far as China via the related Machianism movement, which was a dualistic religious system with Christian, Gnostic, and even pagan elements. This was founded in Persia by the 3rd century, right around 216 to 276 of the Common Era. The system was based on a supposed primeval conflict that was between light and darkness, and it spread widely in the Roman Empire as well as in Asia. And it survived in eastern Turkey all the way up until the 13th century, while Mandianism is still alive in Iraq today. Now, for centuries, most scholarly knowledge of Gnosticism was actually limited to the anti-heretical writings of Orthodox Christian figures such as Irenaeus of Lyons and Hippolytus of Rome. However, there was a renewed interest in this Gnosticism after the 1945 discovery of Egypt's Nag Hammadi Library, which we've been talking about over and over and over again, with the collection of these rare early Christian Gnostic texts. We talked about the Gospel of Thomas and the Apocryphon of John that we already reviewed a few episodes ago, right? But a major question in scholarly research is the qualification of Gnosticism, as is it an interreligious phenomenon or is it an independent religion that stands on its own? Now, scholars have acknowledged the influence of sources such as Hellenistic Judaism and Zoroastrianism and even Platonism, 
And even some have noted some possible links to Buddhism as well as Hinduism. Even in the Old Testament, we can talk about that heavy influence of Buddhism found in Genesis, right? You can actually take a look at a podcast that Jordan, Jordan Peterson does on that. That's actually pretty cool if you want to check that out. Now, even contemporary scholarship largely agrees that Gnosticism has Jewish and Christian origins, originating sometime in the mid-first century of the Common Era, even in non-rabbinical Jewish sects and early Christian sects, probably pre-Pauline. And there were literally dozens of each available all throughout the Mediterranean, from Babylonia to Judea to Rome, and all competing against each other side by side. And in many cases, these disputes were bloody, kind of like the gangs in New York. Now, many heads of Gnostic schools were in fact considered and identified as being Jewish Christians. And this comes to us through several letters from church fathers, of course. And Hebrew words and names of God were applied in some Gnostic systems. And the cosmological speculations among Christian Gnostics actually had some partial origins, as we see in some Talmudic writings and the, the secrets of the Talmud, as we would see in the Mese Bereshit and the Mese Merkabah. Now, my Hebrew isn't all that good, but I think I got it a little close if my uh, Jewish friends want to write me and tell me how to pronounce that um, correctly. But basically, it's Talmudic terms for the esoteric doctrine of the universe, or for parts of it, and kind of similar to the Kabbalah, if you would. But this thesis is most notably put forward by Jerusham Scholl, who lived between 1897 and 1982, and Giles Quispel, who lived between 1916 and 2006. Now, Sholem detected Jewish Gnosis in the imagery of the Merkava, which can also be found in Christian Gnostic documents. For example, the being caught away to the third heaven mentioned by Paul the Apostle. Well, Quispel sees Gnosticism as an independent Jewish development, tracing its origins all the way to Alexandrian Jews, to which group Valentinus was also connected. Furthermore, in many of the Nag Hammadi texts, make several references to Judaism, in some case with a violent rejection of the Jewish God. So Gershom Sholem once described Gnosticism as the greatest case of metaphysical anti-Semitism. And Professor Stephen Bain said Gnosticism would be better characterized as anti-Judaism. And recent research into the origins of Gnosticism shows a strong Jewish influence, particularly from Hekelot literature. And Hekelot comes from the Hebrew word for palaces, relating to visions of ascents into heavenly places. And the genre overlaps with the Merkabah. Now, within early Christianity, we can see the teachings of Paul and Peter, James and perhaps John, may have actually been a starting point for such Gnostic ideas, right? Not like the humanizing sect that we get some 40 years later with the gospel writers in the New Testament. But Paul's idea, and even with James and even with John, is more of a Gnostic idea way of thinking in terms of a celestial being, more of a spirituality, with a growing emphasis on the opposition between flesh and spirit and the value of charisma and the disqualification and rejection of Jewish law. 
The mortal body belonged to the world of inferior worldly powers. Paul calls it the archons. And, and only the spirit or the soul could be saved. In fact, the term nostikos may have acquired a deeper significance here that Paul uses. Now, we also know that Alexandria, it was a hot spot for Gnosticism. And it was the central hub. It was central importance of the birth of Gnosticism. The Christian congregation, the Christian church was of Jewish Christian origins in Alexandria. But it also attracted many Greek members as well. And various strands of thought were available to its congregants, such as apocalyptic Judaism, speculations on divine wisdom, and Greek philosophy, as well as Hellenistic mystery religions. Now, I think it's important to go back and consider Paul again. There's the book of Hebrews, and of course the Pauline letters, and the epistles, and, and taking a look at what they perceive as what could be construed as angel Christology that's found in a lot of early Christianity. Some scholars note that some early Christians understood the pre-incarnate Christ ontologically as an angel, just like Michael or even Satan for that matter. This true angel Christology, it took on many forms and may have appeared as early as the late first century. If indeed this is the view in the early chapters of the epistles all the way to Hebrews that we previously surveyed before in several episodes ago, Jesus is considered the celestial high priest. Now, bear with me for a little bit, because it's going to get a little strange here. Because as some of these Christians, influenced by them, paired the male Christ with a female Holy Spirit, envisioning both of them as two gigantic freaking angels. And some Valentinian Gnostics supposed that Christ took on an angelic nature, and that he might be the savior of all angels. The author of the Testament of Solomon, he held that Christ to be particularly effective thwarting angel in the exorcism of demons. And the author of De Centisma and Epiphanius, Ebionites held Christ to have been the highest and most important of the first created archangels, a view similar in many respects to Hermes's equation of Christ with the archangel Michael. And then finally, a possible exegetical tradition behind the ascension of Isaiah, and attested by Origen's Hebrew master, may witness yet another angel, Christology, as well as angel pneumatology. So I want to discuss a couple little pieces of early Christian literature that was in circulation during the first century. And one of them is the Ascension of Isaiah, which we've talked about numerous times throughout this show, right? Because it's an important piece of Christian literature that demonstrates that these Christians identified Jesus with angel Christology, right? And that's so familiar with what we see in Paul. It's so familiar with what we read in Hebrews. And it's so familiar with what we read in everything that was written by Paul between the 40s and all the way up to the end of the 50s. And that's what the concept was. Angel Christology, not this humanized Jesus Christ. And I'll re recite a little piece from the uh, Ascension here. The Lord Christ is commissioned by the Father. And I heard the voice of the Most High, the Father of my Lord, as he said to my Lord Christ, who will be called Jesus. Go out 
and descend through all the heavens. And then if you recall, and then that's the end of the quote, as Isaiah travels through seven levels of heaven and witnesses Jesus being killed by Satan and his minions. And again, that quote says, and even Richard Carrier is very clear about it. It says, go out, God tells Jesus to go out and travel through all the heavens. That does not include, that does not include the earth. It does not include the world. So we'll look at another piece of early Christian apocrypha that was included in the Christian canon and then later removed. But the Shepherd of Hermas. The Shepherd of Hermas is an early Christian literary work that was considered as canonical, canonical scripture by some of the earliest church fathers, including Irenaeus. And in this Shepherd of Hermas, Jesus is identified with angel Christology in parable number five, with the, where the author mentions a son of God, as a virtuous man filled with the holy, pre-existent spirit. So again, this is what early Christians were imagining. And again, very consistent with the, the early epistles, as well as the original non-forged um, Pauline letters. And then there are three periods that could be discerned in the development of Gnosticism here. So one, late 1st century and early 2nd century development of Gnostic ideas and contemporaneous with the writings of the New Testament. So I want to make that clear. Late 1st century and early 2nd century development of Gnostic ideas were contemporaneous with the writings of the New Testament in the canon. Okay? For whatever reason, it just didn't get to be let in. And then mid-2nd century to early 3rd century, high point of classical Gnostic teachers and their systems, who claimed that their systems represented the inner truth that was revealed by Jesus. And then the third, the third period is, end of the second century to the fourth century, is the reaction by the Proto-Orthodox Church and the condemnation as heresy, and the subsequent decline, or decline, excuse me. But during the first period, there were three types of traditional development. Number one, the Gnostics reinterpreted Genesis in Jewish tradition by viewing Yahweh as a jealous God who enslaved his people. And freedom was to be obtained from this jealous God. And then a wisdom of tradition developed in which Jesus' sayings were reinterpreted as pointers to an esoteric wisdom in which the soul could be divinized through identification with that wisdom. And then some of Jesus' sayings may have actually been incorporated into the gospel to put a limit on this development. And the conflicts described in 1 Corinthians by Paul may have actually been inspired by a clash between this wisdom tradition and Paul's gospel of crucifixion and arising. A mythical story developed about the descent of a heavenly creature to reveal the divine world as through the home of human beings. In Jewish Christianity saw the Messiah, or Christ, as an internal aspect of God's hidden nature, his spirit, and his truth, who revealed himself throughout sacred history. In a nutshell, the Gnostic movement spread in areas that were, in fact, controlled by the Roman Empire, Aryan Goths, as well as the Persian Empire. And it continued to develop in the Mediterranean as well as the Middle East before and during the 2nd and 3rd centuries, contemporaneous with the Proto-Orthodox Christianity. 
They ran side by side. I want to make that clear. It wasn't this late thinking. But it, but decline also did set in during the third century. Why? Due to a, a growing aversion from the Catholic Church, more than likely, and some economic and cultural deterioration of the Roman Empire. And then there was conversion to Islam and the Albigensian Crusade from 1209 to 1229, although much later, but it greatly reduced the remaining number of Gnostics throughout the Middle Ages. Though a few Mandian communities still exist today, and Gnostics, as well as pseudo-Gnostic ideas, became influential in some of the philosophies of various esoteric mystical movements of the 19th and 20th centuries, mostly in Europe as well as North America including some that explicitly identify themselves as revivals or even continuations of earlier Gnostic groups. The Christian heresiologist, most notably known as Irenaeus, regarded Gnosticism as Christian heresy. And modern scholarship notes that early Christianity was extremely diverse, and Christian orthodoxy only settled by the 4th century, late 4th century, right? Talked about this. We didn't have a complete, complete set of the New Testament until the late 4th century. But we had all these other ideas that were happening at the same time. When the Roman Empire declined and Gnosticism lost its influence, Gnostics and Proto-Orthodox Christians shared some terminology together. Initially, they were hard to distinguish from each other. Interestingly enough, According to Walter Bauer, heresies may well have been the original form of Christianity in many regions. And this theme was further developed by Elaine Pagels, who argues that Proto-Orthodoxy, the Proto-Orthodox Church, found itself in debates with Gnostic Christians, which helped them to stabilize their own beliefs. And even according to Giles Quispel, Catholicism arose in response to Gnosticism, which establishing safeguards in the form of the holy canon of books. And the Gnostics movement may have contained some information about a historical Jesus versus Paul's cosmic Christ, since some of the text preserved sayings which show similarities between canonical sayings, especially the Gospel of Thomas, which has a significant amount of parallel sayings and ideas. Yet a striking difference is that the canonical sayings center on the coming end of time, while the Thomas sayings center on a kingdom of heaven that is already here and not a future event. And then, according to, to Helmut Coaster, I think I'm pronouncing his name right, this is because the Thomas sayings are older, implying that the earliest forms of Christianity, Jesus was regarded as a wisdom teacher. And an alternative hypothesis states that the Thomas's authors wrote in the second century, changing existing sayings and eliminating the apocalyptic concerns. And then, according to April DeConnick, such a change occurred when the end of time did not come, which makes sense, right? Constantly adjusting. And the Thomas tradition turned towards a new theology of mysticism and a theological commitment to a fully present kingdom of heaven here and now. When the church had attained Adam and Eve's divine status before the fall. Did Christianity have other conflicts? 
other obstacles or challenges in the race to supremacy, to becoming the largest, most important religion in the Roman Empire, as well as the Mediterranean? Well, Mithraism, also known as the Mithraic Mysteries, was another Roman mystery religion that was centered on the god Mithras. And the religion was inspired by Iranian worship of Zoroastrianism, the angelic divinity Yazada, or Mithra. Through the Greek, Mithras was linked to a new and distinctive imagery, and the level of continuity between the Persian and Greco-Roman practice is actually still debated, but the mysteries were popular among the Roman military from about the 1st all the way to the 4th century, contemporaneously with Proto-Orthodox Christianity, Gnosticism, the Ebionites, the Marcionites, all the different messianic groups that were out there. This particular pagan mystery cult ran right alongside of it and was equally as powerful and important as Proto-Orthodoxy. At the same time, Christianity was being invented and soon to be endorsed. Now, worshippers of Mithras, they had a complex system of seven grades of initiation. And, of course, along with that comes a communal ritual meal. Very similar to Christianity, as well as with its levels of membership. Multiple levels, just like in Christianity. And initiates called themselves those united by the handshake. They would typically meet in underground temples, now called Mithraea. The singular form for that would be Mithraeum, which survive in large numbers still today in Rome. And the cult appears to have its center hub in Rome, just like Christianity did, and was popular throughout the western half of the empire. As far south as Roman Africa, and even Numidia, and as far as north as the Roman Britain, and to a lesser extent in Roman Syria in the east. Now, Mithraism is viewed as a rival of early Christianity along with the many other sects of the religion that were counter in opinion to each other. But by the 4th century, and through the support of the Roman Empire, after the religion was ultimately adopted by Constantine, Mithraeus began to face, you guessed it, persecu persecution from proto-Orthodox Christians, just like the Ebionites did, and the Marcionites, and then the Gnostics. And the religion was subsequently suppressed and eliminated in the empire by the end of the century. Interestingly enough, there are numerous archaeological finds that include meeting places, very cool monuments, artifacts, and that have all contributed to the modern knowledge that we have about Mithraism throughout the Roman Empire. The iconic scenes of Mithras show him being born from a rock, slaughtering a bull, and sharing a banquet with the god Sol, literally the sun. About 420 sites of yielded materials that were related to the cult. Among the items found are about 1,000 inscriptions, 700 examples of the bull-killing scene, and about 400 other mon monuments as well to be seen. And you can actually Google all of these. But it's been estimated that there would have been at least 680 Mithraea in Rome. That's 680 Mithra Mithras temples. No writing narratives or theology from the religion survive, unfortunately. Limited information can be derived from the inscriptions and the brief or passing references in Greek and Latin literature. But interpretation of the physical evidence remains problematic and even contested between scholarship. 
One might also think that if Christianity didn't spread their net as far as they did over three continents and only focused it in Rome, today we might actually be worshiping Mithras instead. And of course, Christianity also had the support of a lot of cash and, you know, the largest empire in the world. But at some time around the first century, the members of the Roman military actually began to adopt the mystery cult of Mithraism, the sun god. This sun god-related cult arose from obscure non-Roman origins, and the first surviving reference dates back to Plutarch's mention of a 67 BC observation of certain Mediterranean pirates that were actually practicing it. So, as the Roman legion gradually moved around, so too Mithraism spread throughout the Roman Empire. And in the beginning, it was mainly just soldiers who followed its precepts, but it was also adopted by freemen. Slaves and merchants in the locations where the legions would rest, particularly in the frontier areas. Now, one thing is for sure, Mithraism gained popularity for one reason and one reason alone, which really gave a challenge to Christianity. It didn't practice exclusivity. In fact, it was possible, and it was even common, to follow Mithra Mithraism and other cults at the same time. You can't do that in Judaism or in Christianity with, with its exclusionary practices. Now, that's more cult-like than any cult I've ever heard of. And it eventually became popular within Rome itself, gradually gaining members along the way and, mo and mostly aristocratic classes, and eventually counting, including some of Roman senators as adherents. According to the, the Augustan history, even Emperor Commodus was a member. Although for some reasons unknown, Mithraism completely excluded women. Who knows? Maybe they had dancers and prostitutes and all that kind of stuff going on. It was like where the guys would go and play poker and stuff like that. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. But by the 3rd century, it had gained a wide following. In fact, there are over 100 surviving remaining temples of, to, to Mithras. In 8 in Rome itself, and 18 in Ostia, which is Rome's main port with Rome having over 300 associate, uh, associated Mithraic monuments. So that's incredible. It was a very strong power and very much competing against proto-Orthodoxy. And again, with power, support of the Roman Empire, and cash, they couldn't hold, they couldn't stay afloat. Now, from the reign of Septimius Severus, there were other less gender-specific forms of sun worship that were also going on, that also increased in popularity throughout the Roman Empire. Matter of fact, Elagabalus, officially known as Antoninus, who was the Roman emperor from right around 218 to 222 of the Common Era. Matter of fact, he was still just a teenager. And his short reign was conspicuous for sex scandals and religious controversy. Sounds pretty cool to me. But he used his authority to install what would be called El Gabal as the chief deity of the Roman pantheon. What did he do? Basically merging the god with the Roman sun god to its form of Deus Sol Invictus, literally meaning God, the undefeated sun, and making him superior to the god Jupiter, and assigning either the goddesses Astarte or Minerva, or Urania, or some combination of the three altogether as El Gabal's wife. Now, our guidance stopped there, 
It was actually fairly brutal over some elements of traditional religion in Rome, such as marrying a Vestal Virgin, who were legally required to remain unmarried during their services. And then he goes and moves all the most sacred relics of Roman religions, including the fire of Vesta and the shields of the Sali and the Palladium, to a new temple dedicated exclusively to El Gabal. But as much as the religiously conservative senators may have hated it and disapproved of it, the lavish annual public festival that was held in El Gabal's honor found favor among popular masses, partly on the count that the festival involved a wide distribution of free food and drink. Then, nearly half a century after Elagabalus, Aurelian came to power. Now, Aurelian here, he was a reformer, strengthening the position of the sun god as the main divinity of the Roman pantheon. Shit, he even built a brand new temple for him in Rome, dedicated to the deity. It's also thought likely that he may have been responsible for establishing the festival of the day of the birth of the unconquered sun, Dies Natalis Solis Invicti, which was celebrated on what? December 25th, guys, the day when the sun appeared to start rising again, four days after having previously reached its lowest point. Though the earliest surviving reference to the festival is in the chronography of 354, common era. And, and he followed the principle of one God and one empire. And his intention was to give all the peoples of the empire, civilian or soldier, Easterners or Westerners, a single God they could believe in without betraying their own gods. Now, a guy named Lactantius who was basically an early Christian author who became an, an advisor to the Roman emperor Constantine, he argued that Aurelian would have outlawed all other gods if he had enough time to do it. But Aurelian only managed to hold on to the position of emperor for five years. Ultimately, imperial tolerance only extended to religions that did not resist the Roman authority and would respect all the Roman gods. Religions that were hostile to the state or any that claimed exclusive rights to religious beliefs and practices were not included, and some exclusive Eastern cults were even persecuted for it. Jews were given special privileges, though, owing to their, to their dominance in economy, numbers and dispersal, but this tolerance was balanced really unevenly, and even on thin ice of Jewish submission. Tolerance of Judaism turned to persecution during the rise of the Roman Christian nation. Scary, right? Intolerant sects would also persecute each other. Jewish sects like the early Christians were denounced by the Jewish establishment as dangerous provocateurs, according to some interpretations of the Council of Gemini and the Berkat Haminium. The result included massacres of non-proto-orthodoxy Christian communities and Jewish nationalist groups. Now, even in proto-orthodoxy, those early Christian communities were perceived at times to be an intrinsically destabilizing influence and a threat to the peace of Rome. We learned this with Domitian, right, during his time. He didn't want to kill these Christians, but he simply wanted them to go away or at least worship the Roman gods of the pantheon, including Domitian himself. 
But the pagans who attributed the misfortunes of Rome and its wider empire to the rise of Christianity, and who could only see a restoration by a return of the old ways, were faced by the Christian church that had set itself apart from that faith and was unwilling to dilute what it held to be the one true religion, the one true God. The same gods whom Romans believed had protected and blessed their city and its wider empire during many centuries had been worshipped were now demonized by the early Christian proto-Orthodox church. that episode up. Hope you guys enjoyed it. And when you come back next week, we're going to focus on still cruising around that 4th century, 5th century, but we're going to talk about On the Road to Power by way of Nicaea. And that's right, we're going to talk about Constantine's involvement. We're going to talk about the different councils that went on that helped Christianity, the proto-Orthodox Christianity rise to power. So again, I really hope you enjoyed this episode, and please share it with your friends if you think they'd enjoy it. But these last two episodes have been super important to understand all the different variations and sects of Judaism, the different sects of Christianity that were at the same time, and the different pagan sects that were growing at the same time, equally as popular, and how one overcame the other. And again, it was through a bloodbath, constant war, secrecy, corruption. It's no surprise that the religion that we have today is the one that it is. Anyway, I bid you guys farewell. Have a fantastic weekend. It's Friday. Love you all, and please share. Take care, and be good humans. <laughs>